Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. All right. What's going on, everyone? It has been a minute since I've done a podcast, but thank you for listening. This is an awesome one I'm really excited for. So I just spoke with Dave Brosha earlier tonight. We spoke about his book, The Art of Misadventure, The Outtakes and Misadventures of an Adventurous Photographer. Sorry, I'm reading that by moonlight because it's such a nice night outside. Um, I really, really love this book. I say that a lot, but... Um, I'm lucky that I get to read a lot of awesome books by incredible adventurers. But what I really loved about this book is how Dave didn't just start by saying, I am an adventure photographer. I am someone who is incredible at this. He talks about his childhood. He talks about his careers, his career path he had from an ESL teacher to working in uh, grocery stores to working in assisted living, to being a hot dog salesman, or a hot dog, let's give him credit, the hot dog cart owner, to being a marketer and a web developer, to being a, you know, a telephone, um, I'm not going to know the exact term, but like, a, you know, someone who works on telephone lines, big, big chapter about that, about how it gets chased up by a telephone, you know, a telephone pole by a polar bear. Um, but yeah, so he talks about a lot of these different things, right? Not just saying, I was always a, you know, a photographer. I've always been good at this. Um, and in the interview, he kind of confirms that. He says, you know, he, when he went, there was a particular uh, chapter that, that kind of set off his photography career. But before then, even up into that point, all he really had was like a point and shoot, you know, cheap camera or, or just you know a camera just good enough to to take photos to share with friends and family he had no understanding of the the art behind photography he had no grasp of the technology behind photography and the other skills right of uh, framing and composition and the patience he would need and the kind of uh you know the skill set needed for an adventure photographer but also a landscape photographer a a profile photographer, a wedding photographer, like all sorts of different things. But the book kind of centers around adventure. So I loved that about the book. I love the fact that he talked about the misadventures, right? We, at least me, I look at these adventures. I'm like, that is the raddest life. That is the coolest life ever. And yes, in some instances it is. But he dispels that really quickly. Not giving too much away, but he, like one of the first chapters is about how different he is than a lot of what people would expect of an adventurer. And really kind of gives a big dose of reality to what people might think of as an adventurer or adventure photographer. I love that so much. And the his writing is so creative, clever, funny. Um, and in some parts, he actually tells a really good story that I won't blow here about how he almost died of dehydration in the Namibian desert. Uh, the the chapter in the book is, dare I say, even better than than his retelling, or at least just as good as his retelling on the podcast. He is such an incredible storyteller, both visually through his photos and also, um, 
you know, verbally and and written um, through his his book and, and in the podcast itself. That it was an honor to be able to talk to him. But again, the book is so well written. Um, it's such a joy to read a a quick read, and the fact that you won't, um, at least I did not put it down. Um, I, I you know I, I read it relatively quickly, and I'm a slow reader. But um, I hope you enjoy. I would implore you to follow him on social media on Instagram, uh, Dave Brosha, uh, and to grab his book. I think he's even got a new photography book that is linked in his Instagram uh, profile. But to get his book, the art, the art of misadventure, um, really, really awesome. And again, he was kind enough to talk with me days before he's headed on two excursions. The first one being to the exact same location where he almost died of dehydration. Uh, again, he tells that story in, in such great detail in the book and in the podcast. But he's going back there in a few days, so he was super gracious to take some time and talk with me about his craft, about his career, um, and about his love of the game. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm sure you will. As always, do me a solid. Like, follow, review, rate. Any of that stuff helps podcasts. But hey, you know I get it. I haven't posted in a while, so that's on me. But yeah, if you could do that, that's always helpful. And yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dave. I'm really excited for this podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. Stoked to be here. Yeah. So first of all, I love your book, The Art of Misadventure, The Outtakes and mis- Mistakes of an Adventurous Photographer. Um, and I like the way you photog- you kind of uh, um, title that, right? An adventurous photographer versus an adventure photographer or travel photographer. I think it was a pretty uh, you know smart way of doing it. I love the fact that there's a lot of personal and professional uh, chapters in this. Um, and then I really love how you like kind of talk through your various careers that you had full disclosure. Like I was an ESL teacher. I'm a marketer now. And like, it, wow. it feels really cool. Like a lot of books are like, ah, you know, I started out as a photographer. I was always a photographer. There's nothing before then. I really love the way that you were like, Hey, I had all these other careers. Some of them worked out. Some of them didn't. I was a hot dog salesman, all this stuff. Um, <laughs> when did you become, decide to become a photographer? And in particular, like, you know, I know you focus, you, you photograph a lot of things, but you do have a focus on adventure and, and nature and, and outdoor photography. When did you kind of make that pivot? And when did you make the decision to make that pivot? Yeah, that was probably actually the start for me um, in terms of, um, photography as a career was just being in I mean I was probably in my mid-20s and like many people in life I had no clue what I wanted to do yet you bounce around college or whatever it is you do once those high school days are over and you try to figure things out and as you mentioned I was a hot dog salesman I was an English lit um, major in in university uh, but after that, I, I really didn't know. I, I went to Taiwan and taught for a year. I went to, um, uh, yeah, just did very, I was webmaster in the early days of the web, trying to kind of just figure out design and HTML and stuff like that. So I did that for a couple of years. And really the catalyst for me was had a opportunity to go up into the Canadian Arctic, uh, a place called Resolute Bay Nunavut, which is for those who, who don't know, it's one of the highest places you can live on this planet. Um, in terms of Canada, it is the second most northerly community in Canada. And it, it's 
the land that you see in 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 movies and National Geographic ge ge uh, documentaries of icebergs and the Arctic Ocean and all this kind of crazy stuff. So I, I move up there uh, and I start working. And even up there, I kind of bounce around different careers and different things that I'm doing. I start out working at a grocery store, end up managing a, a hotel. Uh, and at some point, I be have an opportunity to be trained as a telephone technician, which is a whole different story. But basically, by being up in this kind of magical land that's so different from anywhere down south, I... I went up with just a really cheap digital camera. Digital cameras were in their infancy back then. I think it was a two megapixel Fuji film camera. Had no idea how to work the bloody thing. It, it was one of those things you just buy before you go up as just, just so you can show your friends and family back home this crazy land that you're going to. And so honestly, when, when I went up there, I didn't know how to to use the thing beyond automatic mode, knew nothing about photography, had never gone to school for photography. But I realized very quickly that being outside in this um, remarkably beautiful place, it's incredibly barren, but it's incredibly beautiful. I don't know, just something spoke to me about that. And something spoke to me about holding this little digital camera in my hand and, and going out and, and just exploring a little bit of an artistic side that I maybe had a suspicion that I had, um, but never really followed or never knew that I had talent in any capacity in. And so long-winded way of saying that that's how I got my start into photography. It was just kind of as a complete hobbyist, a little digital camera, uh, living in the Arctic and realized that I like taking pictures, making images. Which is such a cool, such a cool story. Because like I said, there's so many people who are just like, first you start the whole chapter with like, like the um, contrasting how you're not an adventurer, right? You're kind of talking about like what people might think of an adventurer. I loved it so much. It's just such a good way of introducing like people to, hey, this is not what you expect, right? First of all, this is the misadventures of, of my life pretty much. But it's so cool to hear that you're just like, I didn't have, I had this camera, I didn't know what to do with it. And then eventually I became, I mean, you mentioned somewhere in the book, uh, I think it's in the uh, Namibia chapter, where you had like $11,000 worth of equipment. So within a few short years, or maybe decades, yeah. like I'm not exactly sure, but like you went from this point and click to obviously making it your career to just having so much equipment, obviously knowing what to do with it. It's just, uh, it's a really cool way of thinking about of like trajectories happen, things change. Um, and like that move you mentioned when you went up to the, uh, you know, pretty much an uninhabited land, like a lot of people might think there's less opportunities there and you wound up making opportunity after opportunity for yourself. Was this something that you were surprised with? Was this something that, you know, I know, you know, it started with your, your wife having a, a job up there and that's why you guys went, but, but like, how did those paths happen and, and how like along the way, what was your reaction to them? It, well, it's, that's an interesting question because I, I'm, I'm somebody who's fascinated by life, fascinated by living. Uh, I, I love hearing people's story and just even people I meet. I'm not even talking picking up books or watching movies or documentaries. Just people that I meet. How did you get to do that thing that you're doing? Yeah. Right? Because there's so many wonderful and diverse and fascinating not just careers, but passions in, in this life. And I think 
I, I always knew that I was somebody who was very interested in a multitude of things. And I, I knew that maybe the nine to five corporate life wasn't for me. I, I took a stint in the nine to five corporate life, but I, I knew that I was somebody who, who very much liked many, many different things. And I think one of the catalysts for me uh, from a very young age and living in the Arctic was not only had I picked up this, this camera and realized that I, I love just taking very amateur photographs at that time, but I, Resolute Bay, Nunavut, is, it's a fascinating place filled with some of the most interesting people in humanity go through that place. Because it's kind of a, a springboard to the Arctic, to the North Pole, you have NASA scientists go through. You have um, British um, explorers. You have uh, pilots and doctors and researchers and and all these interesting folks go through along with just the incredible Inuit people that live there. And so I lived in a very fascinating place. And it was about a year into me living there that, that a gentleman by the name of Martin Hartley, who is a British photographer, happened to go through town. And uh, he plays a part in one of the chapters in the book, but he really changed my life in many ways. And that's why I wanted to kind of bring him up right now is because up until that point, these fascinating explorers and adventurers, the, the true definition of that word adventure had always been something really abstract to me. Hmm. Um, like I love John Krakauer books and I love yeah. just reading of um, fascinating people doing fascinating things on mountains or out but it was never me. I, I, I knew that I wasn't the type of person who would climb Mount Everest. Um, and so all of a sudden this, this Martin comes through town and Martin was a person who fit that um, kind of mold. He, he had been to the South Pole. He had been to the North Pole. He um, was the expedition photographer on some of the most incredible uh, expeditions in humanity in the last 20 years and so all of a sudden i have access to this person and he invites me out onto the arctic ocean with him on snowmobiles and we go out and photograph and and he's sitting there with all his fancy gear and expensive camera equipment or whatever and i got my little tiny two megapixel camera and i feel really embarrassed but he's just you know what just don't worry about that stuff just enjoy this moment but being there alongside him and seeing that a career like this was possible and seeing that people actually did this and followed their passions and followed their dreams. I remember that being a huge catalyst to me realizing that maybe I don't just have to work in a grocery store or in a hotel or this or that. And not that there's anything wrong with any of that stuff, but just that you can do something maybe off off the map a little bit. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean, that's that really was the catalyst to thinking that there could be something different happening in my own life. So from that point, what was, what was the time? Because I'm interested in the way you are about how people get to where they are um, and the steps along the way. So what was the arc between that time, right? That initial invite to this is my, this is my career now. I think for anyone who ends up being very specialized in one thing, you end up having kind of your, your magic moment where you realize that you love this thing and you want to pour yourself into it. And I think for me, it was kind of in the period after Martin left, he was only there for, I don't know, two or three weeks. And I, I just felt this like 
need, this burning fire to, to learn more about photography and to, to learn, to, to actually become techni techni technically adept, <laughs> um, to become um, more creative, to learn composition. And I remember just pouring myself into all the very basics of photography at that time. I mean, it, in fact, the very first photography book that I bought that I credit to pushing myself forward is photography for dummies. <laughs> Not a word of lie. That, that was what taught me exposure, um, which I had a really hard time wrapping my brain around before reading that book. And it's um, so, I, yeah, just to, after that, I think I just realized that I, I love something, maybe truly love something from an interest perspective uh, for the first time in my life. I don't just have all these varied interests where I kind of like it or kind of enjoy it. I truly love this thing. I love being outside. I love exploring the world around me. I like all of a sudden paying attention to how light bounces off the land around me or how it hits ice crystals in the air, et cetera, et cetera. And all that stuff, I didn't have that before. I didn't realize that I love that. And so that truly was the catalyst for me. And just I poured myself into it. I, I still didn't think it was possible. I, I didn't think that I could do it for a living or anything else. But I mean, Martin was just incredible. I mean, even after he left Resolute, he he would send me random notes saying, hey, you're actually pretty good at this. Um, you, you get a lot to learn. And this sucks. And this is terrible. And you should stop doing this. Uh, but this is actually really great. And uh, that kind of encouragement and feedback and just... Um, pushing was, was really, really remarkable. And it, it made me believe that maybe perhaps I can do it. And so that was the very start. And I mean, the story is long and it takes many years and whatever to kind of get to a point where I'm full time at it. And I leave my corporate career and everything else to take the plunge. But that was, I guess, the humble origins. Gotcha. Um, first camera. What were you getting the first, uh, like official professional camera after your point and shoot? Okay. So after that Fuji two megapixel um, digital camera, at that time, digital cameras still weren't that evolved. So I, I actually went kind of quote unquote backwards to film. And I, I bought a Canon Elan 7E um, along with um, a bunch of slide film, and which was really, really, I think, instrumental in me learning exposure because um, I just, ha I had to know because otherwise it's very expensive to ship film from the Arctic down south to get processed in the lab and then sent back two weeks later. And I got tired of disappointment really quickly. Yeah. So I'm like, if I, if I want to keep at this, if I want to make this investment, I got to actually learn what I'm doing. So that was my first camera, that's, real camera. That's tough because you're not getting that real-time feedback of like, okay, I remember that. Like you're, you're getting your photos weeks later and you're like, I kind of remember taking that. I'm not really exactly sure you know, what mind frame I was in or what settings the camera's on as I took it. Oh yeah. Hey, well, I was, I was a total geek with it. I had this little <laughs> black notebook where every single frame that I'd shoot out there on the tundra or on the Arctic ocean, I'd write down the settings that I had, uh, what smart. speed film I was using, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so that was helpful in the process too. Which of your, so, so, you know, after you're getting the, uh, the guidance from Martin, you stayed in touch with him few years go by and you kind of make the plunge. It sounds like you, you had that realization much before of like, this is awesome. This is something that I could do. This is something I might be good at. Which of those careers do you think helped prepare you 
for your career as a photographer? There's so much going on with it that we're going to talk through that you wrote about in the book, but like which one really kind of gave you the most prep? Well, that's a great question because I mean, I really did have a multitude of different careers and one of them being teaching, which I mean, I end up now instructing photography in many different ways. So that was a huge help, but honestly, probably one of the biggest things to actually help me take the plunge and be able to do this full time was um, I, I ended up in the telephone world. So working for a telco and I started as a, a service technician, which means the person who goes and climbs telephone poles and fixes telephone wires and installs telephone sets. But I kind of worked my way through the company over the five to six years up into a position where I was a, a marketing product development manager, which is a very boring title, but um, the skill set that I got in that job all about marketing and how to put yourself out there and and how to make a business case for something and analyze everything surrounding um, taking a plunge. I, I think that really helped give me the confidence to um, take the plunge, but then also to be maybe successfully market myself so that I could make an income because I see a lot of incredibly talented photographers in in my world who who don't necessarily make it as a full-time photographer because they might be really talented but they they miss that skill set they don't have that skill set to be able to to put themselves out there effectively so i would say that was probably it like that was probably the the biggest um help in this quote-unquote new career that i've been doing now for almost two decades yeah, nice. And that makes sense. I can, again, as a marketer, I can see that um, it is definitely harder to market yourself, right? That's, you know, so, you know, that definitely takes us, yeah. that's definitely a skill, a, de- a different skill. Um, but yeah, I can see how that, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of coincides on to making the, the perfect entrance for a career. Yeah, just it made that process a little bit easier. A terrifying process. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I honestly, I love the way the book talks about, like it pretty much focuses on the less glamorous side of, of uh, photography. So again, instead of being like, ah, you know, I was always a photographer and I was always an adventurer and, and all of this stuff, you're like kind of really shedding honest light on it and just about how like things go wrong <laughs> throughout the course. There's so many different chapters of things going wrong. Um what what were the what were the things people need to be mindful of for being an a venture photographer, but just a photographer in general? Like I know wedding photography is probably not easy either. I'm sure things go wrong there. What do, what do people need to keep in mind, and what is the hardest to learn that you would have wanted to learn as early as you could have? Well, that, that's a good question. So, like, I think anyone can learn the technical side. I mean, it's really you apply yourself and you learn the theories and concepts behind it some of it drives you nuts and makes you pull your hair out and is not that interesting to learn the nuances of focal lengths and ISO and all these technical things in photography. But, but I mean, all that can be learned pretty easy. Then there's the artistic side, uh, the compositional side, which uh, I really truly believe that er everyone can learn too. You hear the expression, um, they were born with that eye or you weren't born with the eye for, for art art. But I, I really do think people can learn the artistic side. But I think um, ultimately the thing that you need in order to be able to do this is just an incredible sense of uh, work ethic is, is really truly it. it um, 
it's a lot of hard work and you really have to apply yourself and there's so much to learn and there's so many pieces to this puzzle um, if to, to do photography and it doesn't matter what genre you can be the wedding photographer you can be the adventure photographer even landscape photographer but there you almost, and I hate to break it down this way, but you, you almost have to think of it all as a puzzle, whatever you want to do in, in life, in a passion or a career. There's many different pieces to that puzzle. And if you want to do something well, and if you want to do something successfully, you have to look at the big picture. You have to step back from that, okay, I love just going out and chasing sunrises. Well, pretty light in the sky is not going to lead to a career in photography. Right. So you have to be able to to say, okay, well, the pretty light in the sky at sunrise, I love doing that. I got to go out there and do that. That's one piece of it. But I have to be able to look around at all these different things. And so if I want to become a wedding photographer, I have to know how to network with people. I have to know how to market. I have to know how to navigate cranky people on a very stressful day and be, be the life of the party and be the, the calming force. I have to know how to be very adaptable and to walk into any situation without having seen a room before and figure out how I'm going to create in this space, sometimes in the matter of minutes. I have to be able to go with sunny skies one second, perhaps a rainstorm that comes in the next. And so like, all of that to me is a puzzle again, right? So it, I think that is one of the biggest skill sets somebody can bring into anything is to be able to take a step back from the passion and just look at the big picture and realize that there are many parts to this. And I got to be able to, to look at them all and try to do them all at a decent level. Hmm. That's interesting. It seems like that's the one you can't cram for, right? It seems like you can cram for learning the technology, right? I have a lot of, I don't have a, any nice camera. I've got my iPhone, but I've got a lot of those <laughs> photography books, right? And I feel, I feel like I know like ISO or like in-body image stabilization, right? All of those things, but like don't really have a lot of, I don't have the eye, or at least I have not developed it. Um, but that last component, arguably, probably even inarguably is the most important. And I don't, I feel like that comes from just getting the reps in, right? It comes from that, that yeah. repeated. 10,000 hour yeah. theory, right? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Like it's getting a, out there, putting in the hours and making mistakes and overcoming mistakes and, and just learning with every click of that shutter and every interaction you have with a potential client and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Interesting. So which one, what, like what avenue of photography do you think you've learned from the most? Or is it tough to say? Like, you know, you were saying landscapes, you do a lot of portraits, uh, adventure, weddings. I'm sure there's others. Do you find that you learn different things from each one? I definitely learn different things from each one, but I would say taking a step back from the genre, do, how do I learn the genre? How do I learn photography? is a pretty similar route across all of them. And it, it really comes from A, I mean, I think most importantly is just getting out there and doing it, as you just mentioned. But B, just really observing the, the people that have walked the path before you, right? Like if I want to learn landscape photography, I, I can bumble my way through for years and, um, and, and I'll learn stuff along the way and uh, I'll make some nice images, I'll make some terrible images, I'll learn from mistakes. But I want to 
look to inspiration. I want to find what I consider to be some of the best landscape nature photographers. I want to analyze their photographs. I want to try to kind of pull up that the, the secret ingredients of all these masterful images that have come before me um, so that I can try to not duplicate their images, but replicate maybe some of the ingredients that went into them. And so whether that's landscape or portraiture or uh, wedding or adventure, I spend a lot of time looking at really great images from other people because I feel like that has probably taught me more than anything as aside from just being out there and doing it myself. Gotcha. Yeah, it makes sense. I know you, you've talked about playing music and it's very similar, right? If you're trying to learn a genre, listen to the greats within that genre. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in your chapter, Namibian Nights, I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe the near-death experience that you had in as much detail and with as much, <laughs> with as much uh, like suspense, right? You obviously know you make it out of there, but um, you do an incredible job of describing it. Can you kind of walk us through that now for those of for people who haven't read the book? Like, what was that experience? How did you get to that particular place? When did you realize you were completely shit out of luck? Um, uh-huh. And then, and then, you know, from even requesting help to to recovery, like relive that. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I'm actually going back to Namibia in about five or six days. And I was going to be my first time. But <laughs> I was going to ask, man. Yeah, and I'm going to be right at that location again which is kind of crazy um but yeah to set the stage i guess of that so i i I, despite the book and the title of the book i i consider myself a very cautious person i consider myself a very safety oriented person i I lead groups through different places i'm a i'm a guide i i have to be concerned about the safety of the people around me it's it's what i do so that is kind of my background coming into this. And, and even when I'm just traveling with friends, I kind of get the reputation as the anal one, the one that uh, safety doesn't dad. take. <laughs> Sorry? A safety dad, right? A safety dad, yes. I, one of my friends who came on one of the trips called me that. Hey, you're safety dad. You're always just the worried one. And so I, I come in with a healthy dose of caution, I think, to any of these uh experiences and but this particular one uh was namibia a number of years ago and i I was going to be collating a group of people around the country 3500 kilometers uh and before the group arrived me and two of the co-leaders decided to go off on our own little venture we wanted to go to a place called deadvlay which anyone who who googles deadvlay will immediately recognize images from Deadway. It's, it's one of the most photogenic places in, in the world. And you, you've undoubtedly seen pictures in National Geographic and stuff like that. Um, I'd been to Deadway two years prior to that. And at that time, I, we went and we photographed it much in the way that most people go to Deadway and photograph it, which is uh, in daytime. I mean, you can go fairly early in the morning, but you go in daytime and you you, you enter a national park and you go a very distinct route and it's a very beautiful but benign experience it's very safe you you just walk across a tiny little stretch of desert floor and you get to this beautiful kind of 
old lake bed that's been dried up and has not petrified trees, but very dried out trees that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. It's very striking, very beautiful. Anyway, so I'd done that two years prior to this, this experience that I'm about to talk about. And when we knew that we were going back to Deadly, we, we decided that we wanted to photograph it differently than the time before. And me and the two friends that I was with, or the two co-leaders, Paul and a guy named Aaron, we are all night photography enthusiasts. So astrophotographers, we, we love photographing uh, the Milky Way, uh, the Aurora Borealis, um, just these beautiful, incredible night skies. And so we wanted to be able to photograph Dead Vlay at night. Now, as soon as we looked into this, we realized that that was near impossible to do because the National Park, um, through the main entrance, uh, just through their guidelines and regulations, they don't really uh, allow people in that from that border, that I believe it's south, uh, east, northeastern border. They don't allow people into the park after a certain time of day. So the, the park deadly clears out at night, nobody's there, and you're not allowed in from that side. But that's really the only viable side to come in from. But we did a bunch of research and we realized that there was one tour company in Namibia that had access and permission to come in from this other side of Deadfly. Now, to, to, to do that though, so we booked that right away. We're like, yes, we got to go do that. That would be so interesting, fasc fascinating. But to get in from the other side isn't just driving down a paved road and then up going into a parking lot and going into Deadfly. It involved driving across places where there are no roads through these sand dunes and off road back country for, for basically two days. We, we took this incredible route. And then even when you get to this place where you overlook Deadly, you're on top of one of the biggest sand dunes in the world, uh, a sand dune called Big Daddy, which I've been all around the world. It's the biggest sand dune I've ever seen. I mean, it, it, it's essentially the size of a small mountain. Uh, incredible amount of sand. And so we, we get there. But even to back up a few more minutes here, the, that day and a half leading to getting to Deadly, and the last day that we got there in particular, was the hottest day that I'd ever seen in Africa and Namibia and in my time and experience there, it, the, the mercury kind of crept up. Now I'm, I'm a guy who talks in Celsius. You, you'd have to translate into Fahrenheit, but yeah. um, it got to 47 degrees and it got to 49 degrees. And at that point, it's so unbearably hot. I, but there's almost a point of pride to it. I can remember that it hit 50 degrees Celsius yeah. and we let a little cheer. We're like, this is crazy here we are and i think that's like a hundred i looked it up i think that's like 122 fahrenheit which is insane right 122 fahrenheit so that day we're, we're driving across the desert to get to devley our trucks break down one of we have two trucks one of the trucks break down and then the other truck has to literally tow the second truck through these sand dunes with no air conditioning anything else um to, so it was a misadventure even before we got there right and so we're dehydrated, we're tired, we're, it's unbearably hot. Even when we get to kind of the edges of Big Daddy, which is overlooking Deadfly. Um, and I believe we got there late afternoon, early evening. And 
so which is kind of perfect timing the sun is just starting to go down um and we we stand out we look at deadly far down below us and as tired as we were as hot as it was uh, we were so excited. We just were like, okay, we're going to go be able to photograph Devlet at night, which is something that most photographers don't have the opportunity to do. And so we're just quickly thinking through, okay, what do we need for the evening? And it's really, it's not that far of a distance. We, we got to go down a giant sand dune, but it's all down. And then you walk maybe a half a mile to three quarters of a mile across a lake uh, dried lake bed and you get to where the trees are so we we each kind of throw a big uh, maybe a half gallon um, water jug in our bag camera bags all our camera equipment tripods etc cetera, etc cetera. sun's starting to go down and we have in our heads that as soon as it goes down the temperature is going to drop substantially and it's a desert and it's going to get even to 30 degrees, right, which would yeah. be marvelous, <laughs> which is what, a uh, hundred degrees Fahrenheit? Yeah, um, about, yeah. Something like Maybe that. 80, yeah. And, and so we, we gave it some thought, but to, to be honest, and this was maybe our biggest mistake is we didn't give it a lot of thought as what we might actually need out there. And so we, we had the company, the Namibian company that we had hired, they were going to stay at the top of the dune and just be there ready for us when we made it back up and the plan was to not come back up until the next morning at about six or seven o'clock in the morning basically when sun started rising again um, we would make our way back and then camp out for the night and so we we line up at the top of the dune and we're ready for if you've never kind of surfed your way down a sand dune it's it's a fun experience yeah. um, right because you just jump and you slide and you slide and slide and you get a little more momentum and you slide a bit more and so we went from the top of this sand dune to the bottom maybe in a minute super quick you dump out your shoes right? you keep going yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly so we get to the bottom and we start making our way across the, the lake bed to the far side this kind of three quarters of a mile walk and as we're walking across, though, I, I feel really draggy, very tired, even in that. And I shouldn't really, because it's all been just downhill. I haven't really had to exert myself. The walk isn't that bad, but I'm, I'm just feeling quite dehydrated, um, even on that part of the walk. And I remember I've got my, my big bottle of water, and I'm, I'm just sipping as I go, not really thinking much about it. Um, but by the time I get over to the trees... I'm already down to maybe half, one third of this bottle of water, this one bottle of water that I have for the whole, whole night. evening. And we get there and I realize that it's still ridiculously hot. It hasn't really cooled much. And, and the sun's gone behind the dune at this point. It's still quite light out, but the sun has gone behind this dune. But it's still very, very warm. And I'm just uncomfortable. I have a bit of a headache. Uh, not feeling the greatest, but I'm here at this place that I've planned for months to, to be. And so I take out my camera and I start photographing these remarkable trees. Me and Aaron and Paul kind of split up and we go just slight, slightly different directions. There's many different trees on this uh, uh, lake bed. And I just pick one, start photographing it. And the goal is to get the, the tree in the foreground and the background to get the night photography so you can get the perspective of scale. Yeah, that's exactly it. So at this point, we're just kind of 
thinking about compositions and and playing with dusky light and but the wind has is actually remarkably strong it's kicking up a bit of a dust storm which is a unique condition that we haven't actually had at dead blade before so even that was remarkable to photograph even if it was tough on gear and you're getting dust through your eyes and all this so aaron and paul are so excited about everything and i'm excited too but that draggy feeling is just getting more pronounced and my head is starting to hurt more and like i i'm so dehydrated right now i need more water so i i finish off my bottle and it's almost dark dark um it's gone through dusk the stars are starting to come out i'm still not worried in my my head at that point i i think as soon as it hits to nighttime it's going to cool down substantially and i'm not really going to need a lot of water at that point Generally, I can go a six-mile hike without bringing even a bottle of water. I, I do a lot of hiking, and I can. That's kind of my limiter range. I can do about six miles with to, from my vehicle down a trail back, and I don't even usually bring water. So I'm not thinking any cause for panic. I just drank over half a gallon of water. Um, I'm out of water, but I have this beautiful night ahead of me. Maybe a half hour into the stars. So I've photographed some of the Milky Way. It's beautiful. I've done some star trail photographs. Um, and I, I, Aaron and Paul are kind of gearing up for hours at this. And I, I, I just start thinking to myself, I'm really not feeling great. And I, I tried lying down. I just right in the, the middle of the lake bed. The wind had kind of died down at this point. I lied down just my head on my camera bag, trying to kind of just shake it off so that I can enjoy the rest of the evening. And and I'll just pause here for a second. I'm sorry, this is going to be a long story. So, And it is a long story as long as you're okay. Oh, good. Me. That's why I asked it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I lie down and just try to shake it off. And I, I might lie down for about a half hour when I'm no better uh, in fact i'm a little bit worse and, I, and my head is just really starting to pound and i'm starting to think like okay i need more water like i haven't even really moved much yet i'm not physically exerted at this point but i need more water and i feel really guilty about doing this but i call over paul i think uh, my friend paul and i just said paul how's your water supply right now he's like oh i haven't touched mine i'm like oh do you mind if i just uh have some of your water um i hate to do that to you but i just really need some he's like oh yeah 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 no worries and and he poured i think about half his bottle of water into my bottle which is very kind of him and so i drink just a few sips but my just the way i'm feeling how parched i am how my head's feeling i quickly finish off his half bottle of water is too lie down for another half hour still not feeling great um when I, I call Paul and Aaron back over and I'm just like, is there a way for us to get more water down here? We have our guides up top on, on uh, the dune. Maybe they have some water. And we have one radio with us, which in hindsight was a mistake as well. But we have one radio with us and and uh, Aaron, I think, goes on the radio and he, he radios up to, ironically, another guy named Paul. So mm -hmm. try, I'll try not to confuse these guys. Uh, but he, he radios up to Paul and he just says, hey, guys, do you have any water that you can, uh, we can somehow get? And Paul up top is like, oh, yeah, well, no worries, mate. Um, and he, he actually rolls down yeah. a, a couple more 
half gallon jugs of water from the top of Big Daddy down to the lake floor. And Paul and Aaron are kind enough because they know I'm hurting. They go down to the other end of the lake, the two thirds of a mile, and they retrieve these bottles and they bring them back. And so they have a little bit more water. I have more water, which is fantastic. So I, I, I have in my head that that's going to cure me, solve me, uh, so that I can spend the rest of the evening out with them. Um, we had traveled around the world for this and uh, had planned for this for, for months. And, but very quickly, even with this additional water, uh, I, I just knew that feeling you have when something's not right and that you, you just can't, um, you don't want to push through. And all I can think now at this point is the best thing I can do is get back to camp, go to bed, sleep it off. And so I, I call Aaron and Paul over. I tell them what I'm going to do. Um, Paul asks me if I need the radio. And I say, no, I think it's better off you two down here having it. I mean, I, all I got to do is walk up back to the dune. It's not that far. And I'll get to the camp and I'll be fine. I'll go to sleep. And so I set off across the lake floor and I get to the bottom of Big Daddy. And I look up at it. And now the, a lot of people go and they, they walk up Big Daddy, but it's from a different route where you start basically halfway up it, not from the actual floor of the lake bed. And as soon as I get to the bottom and I look up, it's one of the most imposing things I've ever seen in my life. It, it feels to me like it's almost straight up. And in fact, it's, it's as high, right. kind of as direct an angle as sand can possibly be without falling in on itself. So whatever that angle is, yeah. and I'm sure some of you um, who's good at physics can tell me, but it, it felt to me like 90 degrees. <laughs> it was probably something closer to 60 degrees. I have no idea. Um, but I, I, I'm like, well, there's no other way. That's the way back to camp. Yeah. So I start one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, trying to get up this thing. And after even 10 steps, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I'm like, because for every step you do, you, you go back a half a step. It's sand that's falling in on itself. So it's not like you're walking up. Even even scree, a scree slope would be easier than this uh, in terms of your momentum going upwards. What's scree? Uh, I've walked up. The scree uh, in the mountains, kind of just shale rock, like just very, the bottom of mountains often has a lot of scree piles gotcha. where you, uh, yeah. And it's, it's very difficult to, to walk upwards on. It's a pain in the butt. Um, so I'm walking these steps and falling backwards, these steps falling backwards. And I remember I get oh, oh, one step, one step, slide back, another step, slide back. I get about 10 steps up and I'm dripping sweat just dripping sweat. I have this 25 pound, 30 pound camera bag on my back with the tripod. I've still got some water with me. I have that new bottle that they've sent down, um, but I'm dripping sweat. And I, I stop, catch my breath, take a swig of water and continue. And I, I really don't know the exact timeline, but I'm going to say about 30 minutes into this process, I'm only halfway up the first ridge of this journey and and there's basically a small ridge and then a plateau and then a big rig ridge and for something that took like two minutes a minute to, to slide down uh -huh. i'm 30 minutes dripping sweat from every pore and i'm not even halfway up this first ridge 
Um, and I, I could just remember thinking, like, I don't know how I'm going to get up there. I don't know how I'm going to get up there. But I, I know there's only one way to go. It's, it's like, not like I can go back and have Paul and Michelle, the, the uh, Namibian tour guides, come back and get me because it was a two-day drive to get up to that point, right? So it's, I have to get there. Right. So I continue on and I, I'm, I take a swig of water as I go along, I take another step up, swig of water, fall back a little bit farther. And I'm finally getting within sight of this first ridge. And I'm just, my body's actually starting to shake at this point and convulse a little bit. And, but I'm getting closer to it. I'm getting closer to it. It's, it feels like it's been now been probably an hour, 15 minutes. And I finally am within a couple uh, steps of this ridge and I come up over the ridge and it's just kind of this flatter area with a spine of sand. And I remember just collapsing, I had taken my bag off and collapsing and just kind of lying there on the sand. So happy that I'm not sliding downwards or having to walk forwards. I'm still maybe less than halfway of my total journey. And so I lie there for a long time, I, probably 20 minutes, a half hour. And me just wants to lie there for the night and just be you know what when they they'll, they'll eventually realize i'm not here they'll come down they'll help me they'll they'll save me they'll figure it out or maybe i can sleep i don't know but my water bottle's empty and i'm lying there and i see the moon so there was moonlight beautiful moonlight but the moon is setting and the moon is about to probably within a half hour of going behind another big sand dune in the opposite direction. And I think about this and I process this for a few minutes and, and I'm like, well, right now I have a lot of light. I can at least see where I'm going. But if I lose that moonlight, I'm in pitch blackness, total darkness, which A, makes it harder for me to get to where I need to go if I can find the energy. But also if anyone does need to save me or find me, it makes it much more difficult to find me. And so I just say, well, the only thing I can do is try to go on. And so I stand up, but my body from like lying down on the dune and just from that monumental effort to get this far, my, my back goes into complete spasms. The worst spasms I've ever had in my life. I can't even, I just wince and I almost like just drop again to my knees. It's excruciating pain. I'm like, I don't have a choice here. Um, so I get back up again and I try to pick up my camera bag and I can't, I just can't. And the camera bag's full of lenses and expensive camera bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And it just, I, I make the decision, I, I'm going to leave it. I cannot physically carry this thing. I decided to leave it. Maybe they'll find it. And if not, right at this point, I don't care. Yeah. I just, I can't do it. So I make my way down the spine of this ridge to the next kind of up section, which is even more intimidating than the one I just came up. And I, I start the same process again, this very dramatic, steep angle to the sand, try to make a big step, slide back, try to make a big step, slide back. I'm probably not even 10 or 15 steps up that part through a great deg degree of effort when I'm actually to the point now where I'm like throwing up 
every couple steps, whatever non-existent water I have in me. Um, I'm just so far gone in the point of dehydration and possibly even worse. Um, I, the effort, the dripping sweat, having no water in me, my, my water bottle is now long, go, long gone and I'm throwing up as I go along, just dry heaving, getting tiny bits up. And I, I collapsed probably six, seven times more on that next big, steep section of of sand. And I, and I still am maybe only a third of the way up that. And I'm finally to a point where I, I dropped, I collapsed, and I'm like, this is it. I cannot physically go further. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I've been in some hairy situations in my life. I've been around the world. I've been an outdoors person for many, many years. I've never been to the point where I've actually felt like I need to call for help. And I'm at that point, but I don't have a radio. That was a critical mistake I made. I left it down with the guys below thinking that they might, it was safer for them to have it. I was thinking about them. And I tried to to yell and there, there's just nothing. My, my, my voice is caked and dry and I could barely open my lips and I it's just a croak and I try again I can't I try again I can't and I just lie there for a while um with a lot of pity for myself for being so stupid but really thinking this could be it and then finally I just I don't know where I found it but I I tried one more time and I just let out a, a help as loud as I could and I didn't think it was loud enough but just by chance um, Aaron and Paul down on Lake Bed, probably well three quarters of a mile away, one of them hears something, and they they talk amongst each other, and they're like, "Did you hear that? It kind of sounded like somebody calling or yelling." And to my to my cr- credit, in the sense that it probably saved my life, they had the wits about them to to radio up to Paul up top and say, "Did Dave make it up there yet?" And because Dave was coming back and Paul radioed back, no. And this was quite some time after I'd left. And so all of a sudden, so I, I had kind of closed my eyes and just trying to hold on the steep angle. I couldn't move any further. I finally see a flashlight from way up above. Um, um, and I hear Paul up top yell, Dave, 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 are you okay, Dave? And I try to yell to him, but I can't really. Um, but I, and I don't know to this day, whether he, he saw me in his flashlight beam, or maybe he did hear me croak or whatever, but he, he, he found me. Um, but even then he can't physically carry me back up the remaining distance. It's about a third of the second ridge left. All he can do is give me some water, some electrolytes and, but I still got to make it. And, um, so I just one foot in front of the other collapse, stay there for five minutes try another step, another step, collapse, puke, um, kind of blackout for a couple minutes, another step. I finally somehow make it up over the high ridge. And I think at this point, it's close to three hours in my journey back, maybe even longer. Um, Two-minute ride down the hill. Yeah, seriously. Three hours up. And as soon as I get to the top, I just remember blacking out, and I woke up the next day in – the afternoon sometime um in a bed or not even in a bed in a sleeping bag in kind of the 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 uh um, camp that we had set up and 
Yeah, I I made it back. Oh, my God. I appreciate you telling that because I know it probably is not easy to relive, but like it's so harrowing when you wrote it, when you just talked about it. Like at that point, you even mentioned it then. It seemed like you were not giving up, but I mean, part of you was like, this is this is the end. This is how I'm going. Right. <laughs> just on oh, this on this. I, uh, I gave up. I gave up 50 times on that trip, oh, on that Lord. journey back, right? I, I honestly did. I gave up 50 times, 50 different times. I was just like, you know, I can't do, I can't make another step. I can't take another breath. I can't puke anymore. I don't have any more water. Like I, I gave up constantly on that. And, but I don't know, just somehow you, you give up, but then you find a little something and then you give up again and then you find a little bit more. And just thankfully for me, um, Paul had the presence of mind to, to radio up Yeah. when he heard me. Good Lord. And, and did you ever find out what it was? Was it, was it just was it dehydration? Had you caught a bug? Like what, what hit you that didn't hit anyone else, especially knowing that you're able to do you know, short, I mean, you've done hikes before you're able to do short hikes. Like it's not, it was not a conditioned thing. It was, um, oh, yeah, else. And I, I've done a lot of long hikes. I've yeah. done a lot of, um, big things. I, I don't know. I think it was just, um, heat stroke to some degree. Um, and maybe, I, maybe I did have a little bug of something that could, could have been from the f- food that I had eaten. I don't know because the other guys didn't have it. Um, but it hit me really hard. And, um, I, just yeah I, I i consider myself lucky but then i also look back and say well you know what you can get really cocky going into any experience and and you can not that i ever considered myself a cocky person but you, you just you, you look at certain things in life and say hey that's gonna be easy i've done that or been there and this is just a simple night photography thing we're just going down a, a hill and then we're coming back up and so i made a lot of critical mistakes in that i didn't have enough water. I, I probably shouldn't have gone down period because I just wasn't feeling great ahead yeah. of time. Didn't have my radio. I didn't have, um, yeah, I just didn't have my wits about me to be honest. And so I'm just lucky that I can look back upon it and criticize myself and try not to repeat those mistakes again. Right. Yeah. Were you in the time that you were taking photos, were you able to get anything that you liked were you did you still the presence of mind then like you know in that instance was it worth it oh you know what um thankfully (laughs) thankfully i actually got two or three of my favorite photographs that i have ever actually photographed in the landscape nature realm out of that short period like when that dust storm came up uh in the early evening when we first got down there it was remarkably unique images uh, uh conditions and it led to a couple of my favorite images in the landscape realm. And um, ironically, uh, when I was just lying down and couldn't really move and just it was so hot, I decided to take the first my first ever nude self-portrait oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. under the stars, <laughs> um, which probably won't ever be repeated again. But I'm actually proud of myself for doing that. Um, and I, I love that photograph to this day because it just refl- it, reflects the struggle that i was in at that moment you can't see anything it's done very tastefully um but but yeah so i I ended up taking a few um before that experience happened yeah and like you said ones you'll probably you probably won't have the opportunity to take again um but it sounds like you are going back to big daddy right in in a few days 
daytime only. Okay. All right. No I was going to, I was going to ask how you're doing it differently. Are you bringing electrolytes, two radios? <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're, first of all, we're taking the normal route in, gotcha. uh, which is quite easy. It's yeah. 20 minute walk there and back. We're taking our group. It will be done very safely. No shenanigans. <laughs> So what type of photog- what type of um, cameras are you bringing for that, right? You have night photography. So wh- how does your rig look different from a normal daytime rig? Uh, in terms of the phot- uh, camera itself, no real difference. I use the Canon R5 now, which is their fairly new mirrorless camera. I love it. Uh, biggest thing with night photography is that you want a, a tripod for sure. You have to keep your camera very stable. And then a lens with, which... We photo geeks call a fast lens. It basically just means a camera with a wide aperture that allows a lot of light into it. Um, because when you're dealing with starlight, moonlight, it's not a lot of light compared to sunlight. So, yeah, so I, I bring fast aperture lenses, tripod, and that's usually the go to kit and a headlamp, of course. What's the uh, shutter speed? Is it 30 seconds? Is it, does it vary? It, yeah, it does vary. It all depends on how much moonlight you have. Like on a brighter moonlit night, you might end up with a two or three second exposure depending on what exactly you're shooting and the aperture you're at. But on a on a night where there's no moonlight and you're just trying to capture the Milky Way and it's pitch black, you're generally looking at 15, 20, 30 second exposures. Um, there are, of course, exceptions to that. But yeah, you're, yeah using that 10 to 30 second realm is where I live a lot of time in night photography. Gotcha. Okay. And for like general daytime photography, what are you like, what are you going to bring when you go back um, in terms of lenses? So I I have many different lenses, but I'm I'm limiting myself to three different lenses for this particular trip. I'll bring a a 14 to 24 millimeter wide angle lens. I'll bring a 28 millimeter F 1.4, which is kind of the fast lens. And then I'm going to bring a Sigma 70 to 200 millimeter art um, or sorry, sport lens, which is just a great kind of zoom range. And I'll, I have a two time extender for that, which could kind of bring it up into wildlife lens territory. Oh, nice. yeah. And yeah, so those three lenses will be my go to for, for daytime stuff in Namibia. Gotcha. Tornadoes, earthquakes, extreme weather. Choose one. You've got you've got stores on each yeah. one. Uh, I know you're a cold oh. weather guy, uh, but it sounds like you've got some heroin stories with hot weather. But yeah, man, you've been through a lot. Yeah, it's it's weird. I don't set out for this stuff. <laughs> it has a way of finding me. Uh, let's go. Let's go extreme weather for for two hundred dollars. Good. Yeah, because you were saying some of them, you know, where you're where you're from or where you got your um, start was like negative seventy. Was that Celsius or Fahrenheit? Must have been that is Celsius. Celsius. Wow. Yeah. Brutal. What are your responsibilities as a Royal Canadian Geographical Society fellow? That's a good question. Um, responsibilities, I, I feel like, are very light. I mean, it's not like anyone's checking up on me to, to make sure that I'm doing a bunch of tasks, but it, it's a great honor in Canada to be recognized as a fellow of the Royal Canadian Society. Um, or sorry, Royal Canadian Geographic Society. You have to be nominated by somebody who's already in it. And it's um, basically um, a society that promotes geographic awareness of, of our country um, that I live in. And it's 
it's writers, it's photographers, it's artists, it's explorers, it's ventures. And I think my, my key responsibility there really is just to showcase the, the beauty of the world around me. And um, whether that be the animals that live in it or the environment in which we um, interact with and why it's important. And yeah, I, I really do love um, so much of this planet, but I, Canada, of course, is my country. And I think it's an incredibly vast and beautiful, geographically rich place. And to have any opportunity to kind of share with anyone that story and why they should care about the land around us, I think is uh, just, I consider that an honor and a, and a good, big responsibility. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I've always gravitated towards like warmer weather clients, but I have been to Alaska once, uh, never really too deep into Canada. But honestly, between your book and another book I was reading just before it, I've kind of caught the bug. So um, it's cool to know, and you know, especially knowing it's to me like a, a last frontier, at least more than the, the lower 48 is. So I might be going at some point. Oh, yeah. Well, and, I mean, there's lots of places in Canada like Toronto and Calgary and Montreal and Vancouver that are, I mean, they're, they're big beautiful cities and they have their own beauty but when you get up especially into the northwest territories in Nunavut you're talking extremely remote territories and vast stretches of land that are just boggle the mind when I lived in uh, Resolute Bay for example I always like to kind of relate this comparison because it puts it in um, uh, a way that people can understand there, there was no local place where you can buy beer in Resolute Bay, you had to have it shipped up on a boat from way, way, way down south. The, the closest actual place to buy beer when I lived there was about 1,200 miles away. Maybe I'm not going up there then. <laughs> yeah, so that's how remote it was. And it, it's a huge land. It really is. Um, and I've only scratched the surface of it. Oh, man. Yes, I live... Um... Not currently where I am now, but where I live is on an island, like 30 minutes from Target. And to me, that's a trek. So it's good to know. <laughs> the uh, wilds of Target actually scare me more than the wilds of, yeah. of the Arctic. Uh, favorite, favorite photo or the photo that stands out first when being asked, right? You mentioned the Namibia one. But like, is there one that has an equally, maybe not as harrowing story and something that is a treasure for you? Yeah, I'm smiling when you ask me that <laughs> question because as, as much as I've photographed incredible wildlife and places around the globe my favorite photograph i ever took was uh on my own front driveway uh i have three beautiful children uh two older boys and a younger daughter and about it was about six years ago my uh two boys at that point i don't know they might have been grade two and grade four they were leaving on their first day of school and and my my daughter her name is Lily. She was four years old and she wasn't quite ready to, to go to school. And uh, so it's first day of school and, and the boys are, are ready to kind of walk down the driveway and get on the school bus. And she wanted to go with them. And of course, we couldn't let her because she's not, <laughs> not of that age yet. And so she's disappointed and she wants to go with them so bad. And, and finally, she lets them go. After they give her a big hug, they start walking down the driveway. And just as the school bus is approaching, uh, she's standing in the foreground. And I'm focused on her with my camera for whatever reason. And she just lets this little gentle wave to them as they're walking away. And it's a black and white photograph. It's one of the only photographs of the 
literally millions of photographs that I've taken that I actually have up on my own wall. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's the most meaningful photograph that I have, but I actually think it's one of the best. It's, um, I think there, even other people that see it, um, feel, feel the emotion in the shot. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's nowhere wild. It's my, my driveway, oh, that's cool. <laughs> but yeah. it, it was the best. I think it's sincere too, right? It's authentic. There's, there's probably no amount of, you know, she's not posing for you. She's saying goodbye to her bros. No, <laughs> exactly. It's just a moment. It's a really tender, special moment. And I, I just feel so fortunate that I was able to capture it. Nice. Yeah. For normal, for like your, your average trip, your average excursion where you're going to take photos, what are, what are your, what's your process? What are your numbers, right? How many photos are you taking? What do you do before? What's your pre-planning? How many photos do you take? How long does it take to edit? I was terrible at editing. I tried to use Lightroom, the Photoshop Lightroom combo. Always really struggled with it because it just took so long. I never felt like I could take a photo, but I never felt like the editing was ever done. And I know most photos require a little bit of editing, but probably not as much as I was putting myself through. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's a very varied response, I guess I can give to that because it all depends on what I'm photographing and where I'm going. Like, I have the opportunity to go to Antarctica about every two or three years, and that's mainly a wildlife trip. And when you're photographing wildlife and moving birds and 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 whales that just come up for a second, you're shooting hundreds and thousands of frames. And sometimes I'll come back from one of those trips with 15 or 17,000 images. Uh, a trip like Namibia, it's a little bit slower, a little bit more intentional. You, you're setting up landscapes, you're shedding, setting up night shots. There's some wildlife that we do, but it's it's more of a landscape trip. And so I might come back from these two or three weeks, just guessing here, with roughly 3,500 images. Um, but so there's a lot of images definitely to go through. But as my photographer friends will attest, I'm one of the fastest editors and colors that you, you'll find I, I i come from a background where when i took the plunge to do photography full-time i started photographing people so I, I was doing family sessions i was doing weddings i was doing commercial photography and it just getting really incredibly busy with that but you had to be able to edit through things really fast um just for your own sanity and to be able to run a business you had to turn around things so i got into the habit of taking 300 images and I'd be able to flick through those 300 images in, in 10 minutes and pick out the 40 images that I think are worth a second look. I, I would flip through those 40 images in another two minutes and have it narrowed down to 20 uh, images. So even that is hard. Even that's tough, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it really is. And uh, it's a skill set, though. It's a skill set just as important as learning uh your aperture and exposure, hmm. right? Learning how to call, learning to recognize what your strongest images are, learning to recognize what the story is in the images that you've taken. I think is a real skill set that photographers should, should spend more time trying to develop. And so I was terrible at first at that. But now, I mean, I, I still photograph weddings and stuff like that too. I photographed a wedding um, about six weeks ago and I sat down to 5,000 images a few weeks ago and I had those 5,500 images down to 800, I think in maybe two hours. Wow. Right? So wow. yeah, you, you learn to be fast and efficient and, and I don't 
love spending time in front of the computer. I love being outside shooting, right? So I try to be really quick on that end of it. Yep, I get it. Yeah. Do you use uh, use a lot of presets that you've established? Now nope. each one's new. Not presets, but just um, I'm very methodical when it comes to looking at an image. I feel like I can pinpoint in seconds what I want to do with the image, and then I just do it. So I, I would say the my average time for editing a landscape or nature image is probably 20 seconds per image. Now, <laughs> if there's an image that I really think might be a portfolio-worthy image, um, of course, I'll give it much more time and attention. Than 40 I mean, seconds. There's times I've spent. Yeah. <laughs> there's times I've spent uh, 30 minutes on an image, but I would say my average is no more than 20 seconds. Wow. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah. I might have to hit you up for some advice on how to kind of get, cause I've enjoyed it. Like I said, I've never really owned a camera. I've, I've rented a few I've, I've worked for a few companies, but I've always enjoyed um, the art of it. And then, you know, kind of, or the technology and kind of getting a little bit better at the art of it. But um that has by far been the hardest. And I'm like you, I don't enjoy necessarily being in front of a camera or a yeah. computer. It's not, it's, it's daunting. It yeah. really is daunting. Um, when you look at a batch, a giant batch of images and try to, yeah, it sucks the joy for a lot of people out of photography, right? Yeah. They just want to be out there shooting they don't want to be in, in front of a computer editing. So no, I feel your pain there. And I, but I really just think for, for you and for anyone out there, treat it as a skill set to develop hmm. and and put some attention there because you get better at that then the joy comes back nice okay we'll appreciate that um cool i want to be respectful of your time i got one last question um i heard sure. you mention uh, uh harmonica heart of gold are you a pucker or are you a tongue blocker what kind of how do you play that <laughs> what's your harmonica technique oh man i'm i'm yeah, I'm a I'm a pucker guy for Me too. sure. <laughs> um, it, it's so funny. I uh, harmonica. I had always wanted to to learn how to play an instrument, and I always wanted to learn how to play guitar. And I just I'm a lefty, and there was never lefty guitars around, and uh, my parents couldn't afford to buy me a a lefty guitar, I guess. Um, and so I I never did my whole life um, uh, learn a guitar up until recently, just six years ago, I kind of seven years ago, I started picking one up and now I love it. But harmonica was my cheap, easy way into the world of, of instruments, right? So I, I bought one, taught myself how to play it. And I'd be out on landscape trips and weird places with some of my friends and they would just hear this wailing of, of a song and thought that there was ghosts coming because I didn't tell them that I had the harmonica. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and I, but I still love it. I still carry it with me on almost all my trips. Nice. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time. I'm serious. Like this is the art of misadventure. It's such an incredible book. You're like the first few chapters are about the funniest things. And, and again, the, the most, uh, I think the most practical for someone, just like what we're talking about, right? People who aren't born this, but they get into it. They become incredible at it, you know, but they've, they, they, they have a trajectory. They have a path and they follow it. And I think those those initial chapters when you kind of talk through that, you talk about running away from home, you talk about like all these these different things that you did are some of the funniest things. And then you get really deep into kind of your uh, your career, go back to some personal stories. And then and there's some really, um, you know, the last two chapters are, are incredible as well and everything in between. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. I think it was, um, you know, it's really good to know uh, how to 
kind of make those shifts, how to, how to kind of find something in yourself you might not have known that you had and really kind of run with it. And I think that's uh, a skill you can learn no matter what you're trying to get into. And um, I appreciate you kind of talking me through that and helping me. Listen, thank you just for having the interest to, to talk. It's, um, I, I think all you can do in your life is, is um, realize that your life is, is interesting. All of our lives are interesting, right? You don't have to do anything extreme for your life to be interesting. But I think being able to, to share stories with each other and to have conversations, I think it's what it's all about and what we need to do more of in this world as we kind of lose ourselves to technology. And I just, the, the, the book was a chance for me to kind of write just some of the weird things that happened in my life and maybe the funny things and the, and the strange. Um, but I, I love hearing that from everyone else too. And I think if there's one thing that I want people to get out of the book is that just tell your story, tell your story, even um, because we all have interesting lives. Thanks for joining. If you like that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews until next time. Take care.